to the scripture, let me ask you um, each, please, if you have a Bible or some way to look this up on some device, uh, turn to the last book in the New Testament, the last book of the Bible called Revelation. And uh, I want to read from chapter one, beginning um, in verse nine, Revelation chapter one, beginning in verse nine, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. It's a long reading, but I trust we'll be able to pay attention. To help us to pay attention, to hear, and also to see what's here, let's let's ask God for his help. Uh, Father, as we come now to your word, I I pray that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Uh, You say that your word is powerful, that that, that nothing can stop it. It's like a two-edged sword. It goes wherever it wants, um, that it won't return void, but but yet bring uh, through it your purpose. I mean, I'm thinking of the prophet Isaiah from which that passage comes and he tells us the purpose for your word is that your people would go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And so I pray that this word would bring us great joy and peace. Please. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 1. In verse 9, this is the word of the Lord. I, John, that's the Apostle John, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches uh, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamon and uh, Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died. Behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. If you've been with us, you know, for a number of uh, weeks, maybe a few months now, we've been uh, thinking through, uh, reading about encounters that various ones have had with Jesus. Before Easter, we looked at uh, encounters with the incarnate Jesus as he was walking the earth and all that. Uh, Since then, we've been considering encounters with the risen and even lately the ascended Jesus. That's what we consider 
today, this encounter that John the Apostle had when he was on this island, in exile, in prison, really. Um, this encounter that John had with the risen, ascended uh, Jesus. It's really important that we get what John saw, get what John understood about Jesus uh, during that time. Uh, we realize that our entire destiny is, is really wrapped up as individuals, really, as we encounter Jesus and what we, how we respond to him. How does the Apostle Paul put it in Romans in chapter 10? Puts it like this, he says, um, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then just a couple of sentences down, he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so when we think about Jesus, how we understand him means everything in our lives. And so here again, we're, we're looking at this encounter that John had with Jesus to, to ask first the question, who is this Jesus whom John encountered? John saw, John heard from uh, here. And it's important too, because of course, uh, John is, is writing to seven real churches where they were listed in, in, in this verse, what was it, 11, 10 and 11 that I've read. Uh, they're listed there, and we find then, as we begin in chapter 2, particular messages, for the next couple of chapters, um, to these particular churches. And then this whole letter written to them, but, but only to them, obviously, uh, to us as well. And John was to write to them about what was to come. Now, when we put that expression, what is to come, and the book of Revelation together, what we're thinking is judgment. What we're thinking is, what is to come is the second coming. And and surely that's in this. In fact, if you read through uh, Revelation, I, I, trust, I encourage you to do that, you'll find uh, many looks at this second coming of Jesus and many looks at this final judgment, if you will. But when John wrote to them, when he saw this and wrote to them, when we read it, we realize that that hasn't yet happened. So that is still to come, was still to come for them, is still to come for us. But something was to happen, as he put it, even soon. The time is, is near. And, and what was to happen is all that was going to happen to them, that John would describe to them from what he saw. And it's happening to us as well. And so what this revelation of Jesus would do for them would be to prepare them for their lives as believers in the world in which they live at the time in which they lived. And it would prepare the church to be the church in the time in which John wrote. But not only that, it's given to prepare all believers throughout all generations to be believers in the generation, the time in which they live, and, and for the church to be the church in the time in which the church is that church for us even now. And so, so it's, it's preparation for us. So, so we need to see this because if we can see this and see what John saw, it will help us, uh, here and now, help us in the days in which, in which we live. You see, they would really need it as we do, but they would really need it because this was a time of, 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 of persecution. Jesus had said that his people for his name would be Persecuted, they'd suffer for the gospel, 
that even Jesus put it so bluntly when he said, they've hated me, they'll hate you. Not a great way to to, to, to gather followers, by the way, except if you're Jesus. Uh, they, they hated me, they'll hate you. This is, this is how it's going to be. He said, in the world, you'll have tribulation. There'll be trouble. There'll be suffering. And then he added, don't worry, I've overcome the world. But, but there'll be tribulation for you. The early church knew this. Recently, we, we talked about um, Saul of Tarsus. And he was a persecutor of the church. We saw it when he was the executioner for this first martyr, Stephen. And, and then even after Saul would wreak havoc on the believers in his day, he was ultimately converted through an encounter with the resurrected and ascended Jesus. And, and, uh, and, and then he experienced himself the same persecution that he had Put upon believers as well. John is in verse 9. Says I John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are, that are in Jesus. Was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so here he is isolated from the church. Isolated from other believers. You may feel that way too right now by the way. But there he was isolated uh, uh, in this, on this island in prison really. Because of the gospel, how does he put it? Uh, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, his preaching, uh, no doubt. Um, we don't know exactly when John saw this vision. Uh, some things, it was in the 60s, uh, around the time of Nero, and we know the bloodbath that uh, took place uh, during Nero's reign concerning Christians. Though most don't think that's the time period. Most think it's later than that, probably in the 90s, if you will. And uh, during that time, there was sort of scattered persecution of the church. We, we, we see it uh, as he lays out um, the situation in the particular churches. For instance, in chapter 2, he, he addresses the church in Ephesus. And, uh, and he, he says this in verse 3. He says, I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up. For my name's sake. And he's, he gets it. It's difficult for them. Um, when he writes to the church in Smyrna, in verse uh, 16, he says, Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days, you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. So, so, so we get it. We know what he's, what he's, what he's saying there. In fact, he writes to the church in Pergamum and he puts it like this in, in verse 13. He said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, I don't know if you're going to put a slogan on a t-shirt about your, about your city. Uh, there may be some who would love to put this as where Satan's throne is, but in the Bible, when you hear that, that's not a good thing. And then he says, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the in the days when Antipas my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells and so again we get this we get this in fact in in chapter 20 when even when we come finally to a judgment scene um, or one of the judgment scenes um, John says I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded 
for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. So we see it, we get it, we know. But this would be a time of, of difficulty. But still they were to be faithful to the Lord. How were they to sustain that? We know that during this time, even many believers were, were crucified. You know, Rome was cruel. Rome was creative, to say the least, of finding torturous ways to punish. And we said that highways would be lined with crosses and Christians upon them. We know the lions and Christians to the lions. And we know limbs being torn off. And we could go into all the gory details. Christians were hated during that time. Uh, politically, uh, Caesar was Lord, and Christians, of course, couldn't make that pronouncement, and they would only say Jesus is Lord, and, and that would get them into deep, to deep trouble. Uh, financially, it was difficult because Christians couldn't, couldn't swear to the God of the particular guild or trade association, if you will, which they belonged, and so they wouldn't be able to find Work socially, morally, the standards were different. Uh, sexual standards were different. Um, uh, standards concerning the value and the sanctity of life were different for Christians than the rest of the culture, and so that was frowned upon and and, and looked upon. Uh, in the terms of religion, not only couldn't you declare Caesar as Lord, but but Christians were actually considered to be atheists because they wouldn't they wouldn't subscribe to the gods of, of of Rome and even cannibals because they were said to eat the body and blood of Jesus uh, at communion. So there were all kinds of things against uh, believers, and of course spiritual battles as well. The battle of the evil one against us and the world against us to cause us to compromise and even turn away from faith. What does John see in Ephesus? He says, uh, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus that uh, you've abandoned your first love. Oh my. Your love for God, you see. What a great spiritual temptation. The temptation concerning sexual immorality. The, The temptation to follow False, false teachers. And then if you read the, the rest of the book, you find that it gets scarier and scarier because there's these beasts. Uh, and there's the, the beast that, 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 that is the secular authority, if you will, that comes against believers. And there, there's the beast that's the false prophet that, that, that comes against the church very directly. And, and then you get the two of them teaming up together. And then you wonder, is there any, going to be any hope uh, at all? What, what do we... What do we need to be able to, to, to sustain all of this, to sustain our faith in the midst of, of, of all that? But the church really did endure, you see. The church really has endured. In fact, you know, in the, the early church, the statement that the, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of faith. That, that you can kill us, but we grow. You can kill us, but, but, but faith is strengthened in the church. And more are attracted and come and are converted and believe that all of the devices, even the most dramatic of them, to, to stop us, fail and, uh, and we grow. But it isn't without means and this means of revelation. See, what, what John sees and what 
John gives them is a revelation of Jesus. That's how the book begins, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it isn't simply a revelation by Jesus. It's that. It's Jesus revealing what's to come. It's Jesus revealing what he's done. It's Jesus revealing what he's going to do. But it's a revelation of him. John sees him. John encounters him. And there's a sense in which John is saying, this, this is everything. If you see this, the rest of it makes sense. If you see this, then, then, then you, you won't fear what's to come. But you'll trust. And you'll walk through it. He even says, you'll be more than conquerors in the midst of this. Through Jesus. One... Uh, Theologian, pastor, commentator, John Stott, who died some years ago, Anglican, um, was an Anglican in uh, England, puts it like this. He says, for this is what a beleaguered and persecuted church needs more than anything else. Not a series of prophecies about the past or the future, not even a coded panorama of church history, but a disclosure of the incomparable Christ once crucified, now resurrected and reigning, and one day returning in power and glory. That's what we get here. That's what John got. And that's what he passed. That's what we need just in this day of pandemic. But always, you see. I'm praying a great deal for my grandchildren. And the thought has come to me during this time of pandemic, which is so different than anything I experienced as a kid. I mean, we had the polio scare and all that, but but the thought has come to me, this may be the easiest time of their life. And I think, what will sustain them? And it's just not that, what do I need to sustain Myself, what do we need as individuals, as a church? And what's come back to me each day this week is, Bill, you need to see Jesus. They need to see him. And thus, we're here. John, John sees all of this on the Lord's Day, which is a, a Sunday. He's in the Spirit, which isn't the kind of in the Spirit that Paul says that we ought to be filled with the Spirit. This is a unique situation. If you come to me and you say that you were in the Spirit as John was, I'll say, I don't think so. Right? This is a unique situation that John finds himself in to see Jesus in a way to communicate uh, to us uh, something that will should sustain us. And he hears a voice. It, it's a voice like a trumpet. Now, one of the things that that you'll see, especially as you if, if today kind of gives you some motivation to, to read through the rest of this book. I won't preach on it after today, uh, at least in this series. But uh, uh uh, what you see is there's many allusions to the Old Testament. I mean, sometimes you get the feeling that John's just stringing together Old Testament references. He's stringing together Old Testament phrases. And so we need to go back sometimes and, and look at those Old Testament contexts to see what he's doing. We'll do a bit of that today. But, but when he, here's a trumpet. I mean, anybody who's read the Old Testament, you know, trumpet, I know what that means. I know God is going to speak and I know he's gathering his people and he wants his people to listen. So John, uh, uh, here's a voice like a trumpet. And, and he says, write this, write this, write this down. 
And then verse 12 puts it, then uh, 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 I turned uh, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And they can't see a voice. And so we know what he means. He's trying to, who's speaking here to see this one speaking to me. And he sees seven golden lampstands. Now we're told at the end of this passage that the lampstands are churches. That makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, that churches are to be, to be lights. But it's interesting. You know, Jesus said, the one among you, I'm the light of the world. And then he turned and he also said, you're the light of the world. So which is it? Well, yes. It's, 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 it's both. He's the light. We reflect him. Uh, through us, through the church, we're to live in such a way and to, to, to talk in such a way, to declare the gospel in such a way that people actually see him, come to know him, you see. That's the sense of being a, a light, being a lampstand. That's why it's an appropriate and easy uh, figure for us to connect to, to church. Now, spoiler alert, it's Jesus who's in the midst of the churches. Now, there's a sense in which we could actually stop right there. I mean, we could really be convinced that Jesus, the risen, ascended, ruling, reigning Jesus, that Jesus is among us. We should all be able to take a collective breath and say, okay, it'll be fine. Jesus is here. He's among us. But then we have more than that. He goes on to, 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 to describe him. And notice how this description, verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, we came across this phrase a couple of weeks ago when, when Stephen was dying, being killed. They looked up and he saw in glory in heaven this one like a son of man standing. And, and we did what we're going to do now, which is we went back to Daniel in chapter 7 and just took a peek at, at this reference of son of man. Son of man, as we know, was, was Jesus' favorite um, uh, a name for himself. Could have been Jesus, could have been Christ, could have been Jesus Christ, could have been Lord, uh, Son of God, all those things true of him. But Jesus liked mostly Son of Man because that referenced something about his humanity, not just his deity, but his humanity as well. But also it struck us back to Daniel in chapter seven. And Daniel is, is not unlike the times of this early church where there are evil kingdoms that are ruling in such a way as coming against the people of God. In fact, Daniel is in exile because the Babylonians have come and sacked Jerusalem and exiled its best and brightest in order to destroy their heritage and culture by causing them to intermingle with the Babylonians in such a way that they would, they would lose their faith in Yahweh, in God. And so Towards the end of Daniel's book, here in chapter 7 and on along the rest, he sees visions. And he's seen this vision of these beasts, not unlike we'll see in Revelation. These beasts, these kingdoms, these evil kingdoms. And the question is, is there any hope in the midst of that? And verse 13 says, I saw in night, the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... 
there came uh, one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom one shall not be destroyed. Now for James, just looking at that, that should give him great hope. Because ancient of days, God, you see, the one who has always been, who is and was, always is and will be, I am, as he put it to Moses. The ancient of days, you see, and so one comes to him and he's like us, he's like a son of man. And he comes and he's been given, he's given dominion to rule and to reign over over everything. And so, okay, again, that's a good thing. Uh, we should be fine if he's ruling and reigning. And, and John says, that's the one I see. Stephen, some, I see him as well. This one, like uh, the Son of Man, is God uh, in the flesh. I read moments ago from Philippians in chapter 2 about Jesus. Uh, the point that Paul is making here is we're supposed to be like him in our humility and our love for each other. In fact, one of the wonderful things that I've seen in our church among our people, heard more than seen because we haven't been out and about and together so much, but how we've loved one another and we've thought of others and we said, maybe, maybe this virus won't get me, maybe I'm young and strong and all of that and and uh, my demographic says I'm not very susceptible to it or whatever but but I know others might be and so I'm not going to think of my own interests I'm going to think of the interests of others when I go to the grocery store I'm going to be thinking of others and how I can make them feel more comfortable in this place so I'll wear a mask I don't like them I'll wear a mask or or perhaps I'll wear gloves or perhaps I'll stay away and socially distance as I cannot perhaps but I will and so it's just that kind of thinking of one another and we get that, not because it was our idea, we get that because it's Jesus. But, but, but here's what Paul goes on to say, the basis for all of that, verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, doesn't mean it was just simply an outward form, but, but that's his very essence, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, not of his divinity, but his right to grasp the divinity. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Son of man like us to take our place. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that it's the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, here's the risen ascended Jesus. We see the incarnate Jesus in humility, but we see the risen and ascended Jesus exalted in glory and power. The way Paul would put it in, 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 a, in, in the book uh, just that precedes this in the New Testament, the letter to the Ephesians in verse 19, chapter 1, he says um, that this power that comes from Jesus, this immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, this very power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's what John sees. He sees this resurrected, ascended, exalted, ruling and reigning Jesus, you see, the very one who is uh, the king. And so when you think of that, and you think that Jesus is among the church in Pergamon, where Satan has his throne, you go, oh, no, 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 no. It's not that kind of throne that Satan has. Because Jesus has the big one. Jesus rules and reigns in that place. Don't be ruled by the evil one. Jesus rules and reigns. Trust, follow, you see him. He's the king. And can you, can you see that if you're a persecuted church, if you're a church suffering, if you're a church suffering physical persecution or, or even uh, spiritual oppression and temptation, as we always do, that seeing Jesus enthroned as ruling and reigning over every bit of evil and every evil force and every evil power, even your own heart, should give you courage and strength. And Paul put it, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I know that that's a popular verse to write on your sneakers when you're playing basketball. <laughs> I don't know. I put it on mine. Still can't dunk. But we know what it means. To strengthen us to persevere in the faith. Yes. He's the king, you see. He's the king. Well, then, then he goes on, John does. Notice, he says, uh, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his, his chest. I, I won't do this, but if you, if you go back in Daniel 7, a few verses from where we were, you find that this very description is, is, is almost identical to the description of the Ancient of Days, to the description of God. And you say, wait a minute, is, is, is that God or Jesus? <laughs> you go, well, yes. He's not the Father, he's the Son, but the Son is divine deity as the Father is. They share these characteristics. It's complicated, but it's true. This revelation of who God is in Jesus, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his, around his chest. And, and what he's seeing is a priest. First of all, he's seeing a priest with this robe and this sash and all of that. And he's saying, okay, this one who's the son of man who's ruling and reigning, he's the king. He's also the priest. He's also the, the go-between. He's also the mediator. He's also the bridge between me and, and, and God. I, I know I can't go in there myself, but, but I can through him. He's, he's the priest. That's, that's the, very, the very point of it. A couple of weeks ago, we, we read some passages about Jesus as priest. Let me, let me just rehearse those quickly. In Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 14, uh, 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to long, long slave, lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, a priest represents us to God. Now to do that well, he has to be like us. He has to know us. He has to know what to say when he gets there. He has to know what to do for us as us, when he gets there. Well, that was Jesus, you see. He was like us, didn't sin, but like us, knows us. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confessions. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, you see. And so he's able to sympathize with us. He's able to represent us perfectly. He knows everything about us. He made us. And now he's come and walked as us. He lived. He knows, you know. He knows our weakness. He knows temptation. And so he goes on our behalf sympathizing with our weaknesses. And even now as our great high priest, he knows the wrath of God. He's actually taken it for us. And so when he sympathizes with us, when he intercedes for us, can't you just hear him interceding? Let this cup pass from them because I took it. You can let this cup pass from them because I I took it for them. They're they're freed of this, the wrath of God, because I have already taken it, you see. And that's what John sees in the midst of this. And we know that we can have confidence in his high priestliness, his interceding for us, because chapter 7, verse 23 of Hebrews puts it like this. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. It's true, they, they died. But he, Jesus, holds this priesthood permanently because he continues to live, because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's always So as long as Jesus is alive, we're safe. Because he'll continue to be our go-between. He'll continue to intercede uh, for us. We sang it in this wonderful John Newton hymn a while ago. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name, you say. Um, He who washed us with his blood soon will bring us home to God. He he presents our souls to God. He brings us nigh to God. He secured our way to God. He's our our lamb, you see. So as long as he lives, we're safe. So again, what do they they see? I I know there's trouble. I know there's persecution. I know it's a problem. I I know that just even understates it. I shouldn't even say it like that. It's real. It's real pain, real suffering, real fear, all of that. But he says, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm the king. I'm ruling and reigning over this. They won't get you. They won't conquer you. I know what it looks like, but they won't 
when they won't conquer you. I'm interceding for you all the time. So that your name is always in heaven. Numbered among the people who belong to God. I'm interceding for you. I'm defending you. I'm protecting you all the time. And I'm even praying for you. You know, the priests would pray for the people. That was one of their jobs. In fact, to let the people know they were praying, they would burn incense. So when people would go around the temple area and they would smell incense, one of the things, one of the things it was used for is the prayers of the saints. If you were to say, I'm really praying, I suppose you'd go up to a priest at the end of the day and say, hey, your prayers smelled really good today. I guess that would be a compliment to the priest. But, but your prayers really smell good. But, and Jesus' prayers really smell good. He's a sweet, smelling savor on our behalf. Even as he takes our prayers as weak and smelly as they are. And perfumes them up. And intercedes for us. What's he pray? Well, next week I may get into this praying that Jesus does for us. But, but he prays that we're kept. That the evil one won't overcome us. That we'll be enabled to persevere in the faith. That our faith won't fail. He prays for us, as he did for Peter, that your faith will not fail. He prays that we be sanctified, purified. So we go through difficulties. The difficulty isn't wrath, because the priest has already made sacrifice for us, already taken the penalty for us. So he's experienced for us, taken, satisfied the wrath of God for us, so that whatever we go through isn't wrath, it isn't God's judgment upon us as believers. It now uses to purify and to strengthen us, you see. One of the jobs of the priests, interestingly, in the temple was to take care of the lampstands. That was part of their job. Uh, not every priest, but some of the priests, their job would be to take care of the lampstands, to, 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 to trim the wicks and to make sure there was enough oil. Why? So that the lamps would continue to burn, so that they wouldn't go out. And so that's Jesus, the priest. He's trimming our little wicks all the time. And he's filling us with oil, so we'll keep burning. We can trust him in that. And why is that? Because as our high priest... He's taken the sacrifice, his own blood, into the most holy place and presented it to the Lord. And the Lord has accepted it. And we know that the Lord has accepted it. God has accepted it because Jesus rose from the dead. When he rose, he declared that, oh, yes, sins for all who believe are satisfied. Then what do we have next? Concerning Jesus, we have that the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow, Because now what we're seeing is that he's not only the king and he's not only the priest, but he's also the judge. In fact, if I could go back to Daniel chapter 7 for just a moment and and read these verses beginning with verse 9 concerning who the ancient of days is, concerning who the father is. Daniel says, as I looked, the thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seats. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. The throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and it came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and ten thousands times ten thousands 
um, stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. He's our king, he's the priest. And now he's the, the judge. Jesus said at one point that judgment had been given to him. But who better? It says um, the hairs of his head were white like wool, uh, appropriately aged. It should stand for wisdom and purity. His eyes were like a flame of fire. In other words, I could... They could see, it could, it could pierce anything, that nothing would be outside of Jesus' purview. Whatever anyone was thinking would be known to him, whatever anybody was saying would be heard by him, what anybody was doing would be seen by him. And you say, rats, <laughs> that sounds pretty daunting. And, 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 it, and it, it does. But what it also means is that because he knows, he sees everything, every sin, then when he makes atonement as priest for sin, he's making atonement for every sin. Because he's the perfect judge. He hasn't missed a thing. You can't ever say to him, but what about this? I I saw that. What about this? I heard that. What about this? Well, I, I know that. And I took all of that as judge and I pronounced sentence. And when I pronounced the sentence, then as priest, I took it all. And I paid for it all. So who better to judge than the one who's wise and the one who knows it all? Yes, this, this very one. And his feet... He would stamp out evil, refined in the furnace, burnished bronze, refined in the furnace, pure is his judgment. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that in a minute. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? Uh, Maybe not. I don't know. Midwestern people, I don't know how far you get to travel. But... For us Easterners, uh, at least for me at a time in my early days, Northeast, uh, Niagara Falls was the place you went often. And it was the noisiest place. It is the noisiest place ever. Not because of people talking, I suppose they are, but you just can't hear them. Because if you get close to the falls, that's all you can hear. And this is like a thousand Niagara's. Can you only imagine the voice of God? And what that means is the voice of God goes everywhere. It can't not be heard, really. This voice of Real judgment. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Nothing can keep his voice. Nothing can keep his word from going every place that it must go. And his face was as pure as the sun. His judgment can never fail. So look what happens. John, not surprisingly, says, I fell at his feet as though dead. He wasn't dead, but he fell at his feet as, as though dead. And you can only imagine that. I mean, seeing all of this, what happened to you, especially in front of pure holiness? Does this hearken you back to Isaiah and his life? Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees the Lord high and lifted up, he, he just sees 
in a sense, the train of, of God's robe, his feet, if you will. But he knows the holiness of God. And he knows he's in the presence of the holiness of God. And he says he falls like down on his face. And he says, I'm becoming undone. I'm blowing up. And that happens when we're in the presence of utter perfection. It even happens with human beings. You know, if, if you've put your whole life and, and what's important to you is your wealth, and then you stand beside uh, Bill Gates, you go, oh, I'm undone. Or if, you, if you've, you've put your, 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 your uh, whole life in your physical strength, and you stand in front of somebody who's really strong, or your wisdom, and then you stand in front of somebody who's really, really knowledgeable and smart. You go, oh. Or your looks, and you stand in front of somebody who's really beautiful. You say, I just, I have nothing. I have nothing at all. And, and that's what happens to us. You see, that's what sin is. And even in John's life. And so he saw perfection in Jesus. And he fell as though dead. But here is the most amazing expression. And we'd expect it of Jesus because we saw this in the context of Jesus' life all the time. Jesus uh, touched. I don't know what he would do with social distancing. Uh, but he touched. I, I told Karen, we were taking a walk the other day and, and somebody's coming down the street and we went in the middle of the street and crossed. I said, I, I know what the lepers must have felt like in the days of Jesus. You know, you cross on the other side. And, 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 and yet Jesus touched lepers. I mean, he didn't. And so he, he, he could, he could do that. Uh, but he laid his right hand on John. His right hand, the, the hand of authority, the hand of power. He laid his right hand on John saying, don't be afraid, because John was afraid. <laughs> That's why he said, don't be afraid. All those passages in the Bible say, don't be afraid. They're said because we get afraid. Uh, and uh, so when you're afraid, read the don't get afraid passages. But he said, don't be afraid. Uh, I'm not here to destroy you. And remember, this was John who knew Jesus. This was John who was at the transfiguration. This is John who saw the miracles. This is John that saw Jesus raise people from the dead. This is John that was in the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. This is the John that was with Jesus when he was praying in the garden on the night that he was betrayed. I mean, this is that John. This is that John that was at the cross uh, with Jesus. Didn't scatter like the other disciples did, but was at the cross with Jesus and his mom. And Jesus looked at him and he said to, to John, behold your mom, that is Mary. And looked at Mary and said, behold your son and basically take care of her. And so that's that John. And yet still this glorious Jesus. And yet still Jesus reached and touched him. If you're not, I'm the first and the last, meaning I'm, I'm God. Everything began with me. Everything ends with me. I, I'm, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In fact, in Isaiah, in the 40s, you can read the Isaiah chapter 40s chapters. And here uh, uh, God is having interactions with idols and and one of the ways that god says i'm god and you're not is he said where were you in the beginning and what's going to happen next and how's it going to end he says you don't know that do you i do because i'm god and jesus said that's who i am so trust me with this i've got it i started it i'll end it i began i know where it's headed i really do have this 
I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys. I have the authority over death and Hades. Uh, that basically means the same thing, over death and the place of the dead, death and, and the grave. What do you say? I'm the resurrection and the life. Even though you die, yet shall you live. Why? Because if we believe in him, he has the authority over, over death and over Hades. He's the beginning and the end. Now, why would this be everything to them? Well, number one, he's the ruler. He's the king. He's conquered everything. They don't need to worry about being overcome because he is among them. The worst thing that can happen to them is that they'll be killed. He's taking care of that. And if he's taking care of that, then he'll take of everything else uh, in, in between. He's our priest, and he stands always interceding uh, for us. And he pleads for us, not on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of his. Not on the basis of our righteousness, but on the basis of his. And he's always saying, oh yes, they've sinned. Take my blood for that. It's covered. Oh yes, they've sinned. Here, here's my righteousness. Always that covers. And he's the judge and he, he sees everything and he pronounces sentence and then he takes that sentence and he, he pays it for us. He's the king who rules over death and over, uh, over the grave. Um, it seems like a conflict of interest, doesn't it, to be both priest and judge? <laughs> But in Jesus, it's perfectly united together. He makes the sentence, pays the penalty, and we get the great benefit for all of that. And now I know that he's king over all. He's the priest that interceding always. He's the judge whose sentence is satisfied. So whatever I go through now, I realize comes to make my salvation more secure in my own mind and heart to prove to me that I really do belong to him because through it all he's purifying me through every circumstance and every situation how does the apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter in chapter 1 he says in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Two final comments. I said I'd come back to this Furnace. Uh, many commentators, when they come across that furnace, they say, you know, in the scripture, furnace, fire is often in the context of suffering and purifying. But here's one who's, who's, who's been refined himself, this judge, in, in fire. And, and it harkens back, given all the references to Daniel, it harkens back to that wonderful scene where Nebuchadnezzar uh, builds a, a, a statue, an idol, that everyone's to bow down to, but these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, don't. 
And so the penalty is that they get thrown into this fire that's so hot that even the ones who throw them in the fire are burned and died. But Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego go into this, this, this furnace. And after a while, Nebuchadnezzar goes to take a peek. And what does he see? He sees four in there. And he said, didn't we throw in three? <laughs> Who's the fourth one? The one who's always with us in the furnace. He's always there. And then this too. How can we really know this? Well, it's because it's his word. See, his word, that's a two-edged sword. His voice that's like thunders, like, 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 if you will, many waters, many Niagara's. It goes where it wants to go. It goes and, and it penetrates everywhere. You can't stop it. The power of the word of God. I have to tell you. I've shared this with a few people. My wife particularly. I've just been discouraged lately. I'm good now, so you don't have to send me flowers whatever but um ice cream maybe if you know but uh don't send it uh let me know it's coming but uh um because i've been thinking you know i've been able to meet together i'm able to see you i'm able to touch you i'm able to i know you're out there uh but there's so much in church about gathering together and i think what what's sustaining us is does any of this matter or the fact that we're not meeting together, does that mean that we're just, spirits are going to die? And and then, our dear Jenny, Miss Jenny, Mrs. Jenny, and Tyler, on Thursday night, put on this wonderful, great kids thing. So I got to sing all the songs I sang when I was a little kid. Karen did the motions. You know, I don't do motions. But, um, yeah, deep and wide, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but then she laid out the truth. A great passage from John chapter 4 where this royal official whose great power in the world has no power to deal with his son who's sick. And so he hears Jesus is a ways away, a day's walk at least away, 20, 25 miles uphill and um, just one way, but uphill. And, and, and so he leaves his son and he goes to find Jesus and says to Jesus, <clears throat> come home with me and heal my son. And, and, and Jesus doesn't go home with him. He just simply says, your son is, 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 is well. And the scripture says, the man believed God, believed Jesus. And he went home. And on his way home, some of his employees had left where the, his home and, and, come and, and, and met him on the road and, and said, hey, your son's getting better. And, and the man said, when did he start getting better? And you know the answer to this. And he said, they gave him the time. And he said, that's exactly when Jesus said it. I thought, oh, yes, of course. What an idiot I am. Oh, me of little faith. Of course he's sustaining us. Of course he's strengthening us. I know we can't be together, and that's not ideal. And there's something about beginning together that that, that can't be replaced by anything else. I get that. But not all is lost. Because his word still penetrates our hearts. I mean, his word is so powerful that it can turn unbelief into faith. 
His word is so powerful that he can take a hard heart, right? And completely change it and transform it. His word is so powerful that he can take our discouragement and our fears and bring us hope and faith. His his word is so powerful that just as I began this morning by thinking of Isaiah, the passage that says that God's word will not return void, but will accomplish its purpose. And then the next verse is, so you will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. And I'm thinking, it can do that. God's word can really do that. And so you see, we're sustained even in these times by this revelation of Jesus, whose word is so powerful that it can find us and he can, he can keep us. Here's my biggest fear. My biggest fear is in a, whenever it is, a couple of weeks, a month, whatever, I run into you and I say, what sustained you during the pandemic? And you say, Netflix. <laughs> right? Now, I know you won't really mean that. And I know that's what you're going to tell me now all the time. But what should sustain us is this revelation of Jesus who's with us. It's the king. It's our priest. He's even the judge. But he has authority over everything and he touches us. And we're made alive. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us uh, in these days. I pray that we would know your word and it would sustain us because your word is powerful and your word brings to us this revelation of Jesus. So be with us. Help us, I pray. God, it grieves my heart that we're not all together. And I long for the day when we will and even anticipate it getting closer and closer all the time. So please, I pray, uh, work in such a way in our hearts and in our planning and, and even in our communities so that we can do this, come together. But till then, Please remind me, all of us, it's not lost, that you're with us. That you're empowering, you're strengthening, you're enabling us. So that we do come back together. The joy won't be based on all that was lost, now it's back. No. The joy will be that we'll look at each other and we'll realize that you have sustained us in the midst of this. And we'll rejoice together. I, I pray with rejoicing that's more sincere, that's more powerful than maybe ever before. So please, that's, that's our heart's desire, that you would work in such a way to bring us back together, that you would work in the midst of the days in which we live, to bring good wisdom to all those in authority, to bring healing to our land and world, but above all, to bring real, deep faith in Jesus. Help us to be that light. Help us to be that lampstand 
enable us to be a people that shows Jesus. Uh, This I pray in Jesus' name.